I don't think we can ever talk about something turning violent. We are already always in a violent state of affairs if we still need to cry out Black Lives Matter. If fascists are allowed to march while chanting Jews will not replace us, like don't talk to me about turning violent. The violence is there in the DNA of the situation. Journalist Natasha Leonard is no stranger to protests, including the Black Lives Matter uprisings that have taken off this summer across the U.S. Those protests have become a backdrop to the 2020 election as President Donald Trump runs as a law and order candidate, literally. He's tweeted out LAW AND ORDER in all capital letters multiple times since the protests began. And to make his case, he's returning to a familiar foe. You know, they show up in the helmets and the black masks, and they've got clubs and they've got everything. Antifa! Antifa. Antifa, as in anti-fascist. Trump has mentioned Antifa a lot over the last few years, but now it seems to be reaching a fever pitch as the election gets closer. Antifa seems to be more and more portrayed as enemy number one, a shadowy cabal of leftists keen on taking over the U.S., So where did that perception come from, and what is Antifa really? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. They call themselves Antifa, known to not only clash with bigots, but also sometimes with police and occasionally storefronts. These guys show up in black masks with clubs and they want to confront people and they want to agitate and they want the headlines. Does anybody want to have somebody from Antifa as a resident of your suburb? I don't think so. I think if you only consumed mainstream and establishment media, you would get the impression that Antifa was a huge, very well-organized, connected group committed to chaotic harm without any sort of social or racial justice undergirding in mind. That's certainly the impression that the Trump administration has committed to to painting of Antifa. They have made Antifa the boogeyman of their re-election campaign. Natasha is a columnist at The Intercept and author of the book Being Numerous, Essays on Non-Fascist Life. Perhaps not surprisingly, she is an anti-fascist herself. And that's why we wanted to talk to her. There's a lot of talk about Antifa, but you don't often hear from someone who identifies with it. We asked her to list some of the biggest misconceptions that she often sees. The first, that Antifa is even a group. A dangerous, violent group. Is the world finally waking up to the threat posed by Antifa and similar groups? Don't you get the sense that there's some individual or individuals who are centrally organizing this? First and foremost, there is no one big organization called Antifa with membership, leadership, some sort of central committee. A historian in the U.S., Mark Braid, says, think of it like birdwatching. There's obviously not one big organization of birdwatching TM, but it's an activity with a certain set of practices that numerous groups can pick up, take up, and engage in. We'll dig into those tactics later, but first, misconception number two. Antifa practitioners are aimless agents of chaos. 
fires, property damage, hand-to-hand -hand combat at protests across the country. These are leftists who frankly hate America, who want to overthrow it, happy to take on anyone else who stands for the flag or traditional values in this country. It's certainly not chaos for chaos's sake. It's a very focused type of disruptive action that aims to take any oxygen away from the organizing far right by quite physically breaking up rallies or shutting down when far right neo-Nazi and white supremacist speakers gather to speak. And that can involve property damage and that can also involve physical confrontation. But it's almost always very, very targeted with an increasingly emboldened far right. As other anti-fascists have put it, it's about self-defense. When fascists come to our city to attack people, we are going to put our bodies between fascists and the people they want to attack and try to prevent them from doing that. Now, the images of property damage and street fights that are often associated with Antifa, well, there's truth to them. But Natasha says it's worth looking at the numbers when it comes to deadly violence. The Anti-Defamation League actually does this. They track and categorize what they call domestic extremist killings. And their numbers show that the far right is actually responsible for more lives lost than any other extremist category it tracks, including what it calls the far left. For those two, it's about 330 to 13 over the last 10 years up through 2019. In the last 10 years, far-right militia members, individual white supremacists and white supremacist groups are responsible for over 75% of extremist killings. So the misconception that the left is somehow a greater threat to life or liberty really depends which lives you think get to matter. And a leaked intelligence assessment by the Department of Homeland Security has even identified, quote, white supremacist extremists, unquote, as the foremost threat to the U.S. elections. And that's a key part of Antifa, the anti in the anti-fascism. For as long as fascism has existed, so has anti-fascism. Antifa is more of a political practice that has existed for about a hundred years, certainly since the left-wing groups that fought Mussolini's and Hitler's supporters a century ago. The term was first used by a communist group in Germany, dating back to before World War II. And while many people are not exactly pro-fascism, that doesn't mean that everyone against it is actively fighting it. As Natasha put it, you can't reason your way out of fascism. It's not an ideology with a purely rational appeal. She says it has to be confronted. So I would love us all to be Antifa, but we are not all militantly anti-fascist. One would hope that we are all willing to stand up and fight fascism in all its forms. We do want that. But there is something specific about Antifa that is a set of practices with a specific history. And it is really, it's militant anti-fascism. When Natasha says militant, she doesn't necessarily mean physically confrontational. That disruption takes place in different ways. But it all falls along the lines of confronting far-right organizing. The spread of tactics that Antifa takes up are broader than I think mainstream media would have you believe, because obviously attention is put on Antifa when there is physical confrontation. But most of the work is research. 
It's in fact incredibly nerdy. So a lot of it is online doing the really unpleasant work of being in far right specific online communities in order to find out which fascist groups are organizing and making it public that someone in your neighborhood is uh, organizing neo-Nazi and informing their employers Things like that that make it more and more impossible to organize with the anonymizing safety of the internet that a lot of neo-fascists do rely upon. No one's paying attention to them. And sooner or later, they're going to be your police officers. They're going to be your politicians. They're going to be your teachers. They are going to be people that you cannot touch. And I don't want that to happen. Or as The Daily Show put it, Antifa is doing for society what women do for their friends. You know, she's like, girl, I know he seems normal, but there's something you should know about him. He's a Nazi who never calls back when he says he will. Then, of course, you also have very public fascists, probably the most famous in recent years to get a real platform who has lost some standing now, I think, thanks to Antifa interventions, the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer would prefer to be called alt-right, a term that he famously coined. If the misconceptions of Antifa have an origin story, he's part of it, and he was there for several key moments. He's one of those guys in a suit, with his hair short on the sides, long on the top, making white supremacy dapper again. And he gained some traction on CNN and the Los Angeles Times, and with his own massive audience on social media. But he doesn't have the platform he once did. He had tens of thousands of followers on Twitter. So just as an example, getting his platforms removed, him and those of his ilk, is a huge amount of Antifa work, which, you know, members of the public who aren't often involved in Antifa organizing take part in too, you know, which is hardly radical, right? Pointing out to a social media company that their hate speech rules are being violated. But drawing attention to those figures and trying to shut those down is as much Antifa work as taking a punch to a neo-Nazi. That punch, back in 2017, was the first encounter many Americans had with Antifa on their screens. If you didn't know Richard Spencer as the dapper Nazi before then, you might have heard of him around Trump's inauguration, when an anti-fascist punched him in the face in the middle of an interview. No, I'm not a neo-Nazi. Do you like black people? He's being interviewed on camera and being harassed by a group of activists, explaining the green frog pin on the lapel of his suit, when... Are you like the version of the neo-Nazi movement? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. We still don't know who actually threw the punch because the person was masked and wearing all black. That signaled their participation in another notable anti-fascist action that day, a disruptive march against Trump's inauguration. There was video of smashed windows and a limousine burning. Police in riot gear facing off against the protesters just six blocks from the inaugural parade. Natasha was there too participating. The protest was, I think, a specific gesture to the fact that we see Trump as an explicitly fascist force. If we engage in that repertoire of protest, we're saying we recognize the thing we are opposing as fascist. But from those first days of the Trump administration, 
there have been consequences for participating in these kinds of anti-fascist actions. At that demonstration, police made mass arrests of protesters and journalists alike. Multiple felony and misdemeanor charges, including inciting or urging to riot, conspiracy to riot, and multiple counts of destruction of property. Many of the defendants were on trial for more than a year, facing down decades in prison. But eventually, all of them were either acquitted or had their charges dropped. But while the inauguration protesters were on trial for property damage, Richard Spencer was helping to organize the largest white supremacist gathering in decades. The Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, in 2017. It was a big moment for anti-fascists, too. Locals had prepared counter-protests. And then... car just plowed through hundreds of people downtown Charlottesville. The driver is identified as James Alex Field. Just before the attack, Fields was caught chanting a message of white power. That attack killed one counter-protester, Heather Heyer, and injured dozens of others. But despite the white supremacist violence, the whole weekend became another flashpoint in the American understanding of Antifa. I think a lot of people felt that surely everyone would just decry this and all those kind of veiled, euphemistic, almost fascisms would be masked off, revealed for what they are. That's not what happened. After Charlottesville, one of the main takeaways from Donald Trump was famously that there were very fine people on both sides. But anti-fascists continued counter-protesting at rallies, raising hell at white supremacist speeches and creating a general atmosphere of confrontation and disruption. Meanwhile, violence from the far right seemed to soar. There has been a shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oregon State Police are warning lawmakers to stay away from the Capitol because of threats from militias. Hispanic Americans say they are fearful after the mass shooting in El Paso. A racist manifesto posted online before the shooting claimed, quote, this attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. So fast forward to today. There's been more than 100 days of sustained protests around the country following high-profile police killings of Black people. You know, within days of the current anti-racist uprisings, the, the swiftness with which the Trump administration and then many others in the media were willing to say, these aren't somehow organic and justified uprisings in any way. The property damage, the rebellious nature can only be explicable by talking about anarchists and Antifa coming in and burning things down. The fact that numerous protesters are willing to take militant action right now, it kind of makes it readily available for Trump to say, actually, this is not anything legitimate. This is just outside agitator Antifa. Here's U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr making that same case. In many places, it appears the violence is planned, organized, and driven by anarchic and left extremist groups using Antifa-like tactics, many of whom travel from outside the state to promote the violence. Natasha says there's several problems with that. First of all, it delegitimizes Black-led uprisings. I don't think 
those sort of protests are only justified if people mourn and march politely. Also, Natasha says, just because a mass anti-racist uprising is using confrontational tactics, and just because the government is conflating it with Antifa, it doesn't mean that everyone in the streets identifies with that label, even when there are anti-fascist protesters there too. It would be a kind of category mistake to say, every time you see a window broken, that was Antifa. Every time you see people dressed in all black, that was Antifa. Because that's just sort of technically not true in terms of how groups self-identify. And we don't want to forget the important legacy of black liberation struggle. And that comes from a very different historical legacy than the European history of anti-fascism even if the ideology being opposed, that of genocidal white supremacy, is the same. But that complexity in how protesters identify themselves often gets lost. Natasha says to much of the media and the public, what the protests are about is less important than whether they turn violent. You see it often in media narratives around protests that are rebellious or disruptive. You hear about the violent turn. The protesters turned violent. The nation already on edge as protests turned violent across America. A protest in Philadelphia that started peacefully this afternoon grew violent, a police car burning. Authorities say they have a plan to deal with these violent outbreaks. I think that's a categorical mistake because it mislocates violence. In the context of an anti-racist protest in response to yet another police execution of a black man, the background state of affairs is a violence. So if we're going to talk about Antifa bringing any sort of violence at all, I, I insist that we call it a counter-violence. And I'd even apply that to the very rare moments when mainstream journalists do say the police turned violent. When we see the presence of tear gas wielding, baton beating police officers in tanks, people talk about this violent turn in the police. But let's not normalize standard issue police as something non-violent. And then instead of addressing any of the, the root causes that drive people quite righteously into the streets, and into disruptive protest, the Democrats have almost tried to outdo the Republicans in reaffirming themselves as the party of law and order, as if the worst thing in the world is a broken window. That battle for the narrative of law and order is playing out in U.S. cities, many of which are run by Democrats. The federal government designated multiple major cities, including New York and Seattle, as quote-unquote anarchist jurisdictions, a term that's a bit of an oxymoron and news to the protesters facing police crackdowns in those cities. Meanwhile, the Democrats' presidential candidate Joe Biden is defending himself from a similar accusation, not only being soft on protesters, but actually being Antifa himself. If you've been online recently, you've probably seen this. If you type Antifa.com into your browser, you go automatically to the Joe Biden for president website. The rioters and Joe Biden have a side. They're both on the side of the radical left, and that is so obvious. It was an effort on the Trump campaign that, that remains pretty strong, even if it's baseless, to say, actually, Joe Biden loves Antifa loves anarchy, loves uprisings, which obviously for those of us who know anything about Joe Biden close to reality, know it's quite, quite the opposite. 
Joe Biden has said as much himself. You know my heart, you know my story, my family's story. Ask yourself, do I look like a radical socialist with a soft spot for rioters? But right now it means that the entire fulcrum is about who can be harsher against rightful protest. And I think that's obviously pretty depressing and frightening given that we're already in a context where anti-protest laws all around the country have been more and more aggressive. There's a backdrop of more and more mass arrests, more felony rioting charges, and even a Senate hearing arranged by Senator Ted Cruz called Protecting Speech by Stopping Anarchist Violence. We're seeing signs that a significant portion of this violence, of this rioting, is is not random, it's not spontaneous. Rather, it is coordinated and inspired by leftist anarchist groups, groups like Antifa, that will, without shame, exploit a national tragedy to attack American buildings, American homes, and American lives. So we're seeing, in the context of an already repressive two-dissent government, an out-repression argument in order to garner voters. So there's no one in government who wants to be the kind of stopping point to that. And it became more frightening when Trump dropped what Natasha refers to as the T-word. So about a few weeks into the anti-racist uprisings, this summer, Trump sent out a most Trumpian tweet. He tweeted, The United States of America will be designating Antifa as a terrorist organization. These people are anarchists. Which was problematic in numerous ways. First of all, he actually doesn't have the legal capacity to do that for a number of reasons. Among those reasons, Natasha points out, there's no way for the U.S. to designate a domestic group as a terrorist organization. And even if it were possible, remember, Antifa isn't a group at all. But that doesn't mean there aren't real consequences for floating the idea. To name anti-fascism as the ideological enemy of the state is in one way very telling given the fascistic nature of this state, but it also emboldens the, the already quite emboldened militia groups to take things into their own hands because someone has been named not only an enemy, but a terrorist enemy. But when asked if all of these actions would have a chilling effect on anti-fascist organizing, Natasha's answer was somewhat optimistic. Whether or not this will have a chilling effect, one might think it would, but actually I think we're seeing quite the opposite. I think we're seeing people ever more ready to continue to take to the streets against racism, against fascism. If anything, I think we're seeing people with the most to lose more and more aware that the stakes are high and, and they're going to keep fighting. And that's, I think, what's so uh, you know astounding about this, this protest moment, this moment of uprisings. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliay and Alexandra Locke with Oni Wohacha, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilbe, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilad. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is head of audio. We'll be back. 